Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. Well, Republicans returning to Washington, they've got to decide whether they are going to uh, set aside or support a bipartisan health care bill. It has uh, gained some acceptance in Congress. Indeed, uh, Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer said over the weekend that the bill uh, include the bill's support includes all of the 48 uh, Senate Democrats, as well as 12 publicly committed Republicans, enough to overcome any filibuster. So is there a chance of some kind of bar- bipartisan resolution? Here to help us understand the divide that exists be- between Republicans and Democrats is Ken Stern. He is an author and the former chief executive of NPR, and he's the author of the new book entitled Republican Like Me, How I Left the Liberal Bubble and Learned to Love the Right. And he joins us in our studio. Ken, thank you for being here. Thanks for having me on the show. Uh, maybe j- as a jumping off point, this idea of because we're waiting to hear what's going to happen with any kind of you know healthcare legislation, I wonder if you could kind of take that and then explain why you wrote this book and a little bit of your experience learning about different perspectives when it comes to such important issues like healthcare. Yeah, I think it's actually an interesting example. So let me tell you why I wrote the book, and then we'll tie it into healthcare. So I wrote the book because I've become increasingly concerned about the polarization. Um, more and more, we live in our own world. We don't. Uh, um, uh, communicate with the other side, and we've continued to uh, think uh, worse and worse of the other side. And it actually has relatively little to do with issues. Issue polarization, how much we disagree, hasn't really changed in this country over the last 25 years. How much we hate the other side has gone off the charts. Um, so so uh, my book is really, and, and there's a reason for that. The reason is become more divided geographically and demographically. We don't know the other side. When you don't know the other side, it becomes easy to demonize them. Um, so my book was about me leaving my 93% Democratic um, ward in Washington, D.C., and spending as much time as I could with Republicans, where they uh, work, where they pray, where they, where they hunt. Uh, and it was an eye-opening experience for me. And one of the things I learned along the way is when, it com- when you get polarized like this, it's often not about substance. It's about whether you're winning or losing. There's actually a lot of social science around it. It doesn't actually matter. The actually underlying merits doesn't matter. It's about my side beating your side. And I think that's a lot to do with politics in Washington, D.C. right now. You know, Ken, before we get into what you found as you took this trip across the country, I'm wondering whether you are saying that as the chief executive officer, the former chief executive officer of NPR, you think that NPR and other media outlets do perpetuate these ideas? Well, I think so. So let's that's actually two different issues to talk about there. Um, uh, in the broader scheme of things, um, uh, um, I think what media, like all people do, they live in their own bubble. Uh, they, they're in a place, they, 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 they tend to perpetuate themselves, they hire people like themselves, uh, they think like themselves, they have a confirmation bias always going on. And, it, and it's not an necessarily an intentional thing, but it's an important thing because it terms what's important, who you talk to, what issues you cover. And I think that's why a lot of the country feels locked out of sort of what's called mainstream media. Um, uh, and that's a subtle thing that I think is, is hard to grapple with, but it's real. The, the issue I think we found 
more recently in the Trump era is that media has discovered that conflict plays. It's actually not a really new concept. You know, if it bleeds, it leads. But, you know, uh, uh, the best thing that's happened to the New York Times is Trump's attack on the failing New York Times. And the best thing that happens to Trump is the New York Times attacks on him. Um, and there's actually a win-win for them and kind of a lose-lose for democracy and sort of civility. Well, l- let's go back to that because that's n- those are not things you can legislate. No, I think that's, uh, yeah. Uh, these are tough things. Um, Where does uh, it come from? Based on your trips and your meeting of people, how do, what do they say to you in order to explain why they feel the way they do? So I think uh, um, it, it's, a, it's a challenging question because I think people uh, in the flyover states, let's just be... The, yeah, I was going to say, pick things. an example, maybe an yeah. anecdote or two. Yeah, in Kentucky, when you go down and talk to people who are seeing their coal mines closed, um, you're in Appalachia, which has been essentially an internal colony of the East Coast of the United States for 100 years, uh, where coal mining provi- provided a semblance of, uh, of middle-class life. And they see the, their economy going, they see their hope going, they see opioid addiction on the rise, they see... Uh, um, their kids uh, um, not having opportunity, uh, they get angry. They don't see those stories are told. They hear things like climate change, and they just see sort of their outside colon- the colonial powers from Washington, D.C., New York, California, shutting them down and shutting them down without really a concern about um, their livelihood. And that translates into anger. That translates into rejection of science. It translates into a whole a whole gestalt of one side against the other. And, you know, you can argue the facts a lot, but the facts matter less than the feelings. Okay, so at a time when the facts matter less than the feelings and you have these sort of increasingly ingrained winner and loser type of mentality that is uh, not easy to resolve, even on the issues, as you point out, what's the path forward? I mean, I'm sure that if you were to sit down with one person who thinks differently from you, who's from a state that's not in your bubble or in a world, you could find commonality because we're human beings. But like from a a sort of social level, what's the way forward at a time when Donald Trump is having a, a Twitter war right now with Bob Corker, a uh, Republican senator. I don't think there's any e- easy answers, and I, I will assure you my book does not have any uh, <laughs> conclusions that solves the problem. But I think it starts first with um, something I realized along the way, which is we're actually in an exceeding, in, a, in an era of high discourse and high anger, we're actually an exceedingly moderate people. When you actually talk to people and actually look at the data around the most polarizing issues of the day, people actually move towards the center on abortion, on health care, on guns. It's actually an extraordinary amount of commonality. Uh, and if you actually go, and actually sort of telling people that and trying to translate that into the ideas like the other side or actually aren't the radicals. The other sides are people telling us we're the radicals. Right, but here's the problem, because we were just yeah. talking about how blood sells, you know, and, and so if, you know, if, if, if the conflict is what people want to read, how do you, t- you know, tell them over and over again, you're moderate. You're mo- yeah. We're all moderate. We all just want to come ground. I mean, what I just I think that that's the problem is that you know in a time when everyone's looking for attention, you are seeing you know increasingly inflammatory rhetoric. Yeah, um, you know I, I think there's got to be uh, so I, uh, before I again tell you I don't have the answers. Um, uh, and <laughs> Fair enough. You can cook, kick me out of the studio for being frustrating. Um, it, it's also the political parties are part of the problem. And I think one of the things. You know, you always hear people complain about the politicians, Washington political parties. I'm from Washington. I've never really felt that until this trip. Uh, and understanding how the political parties have actually found progress for themselves, 
fundraising, electioneering, off of conflict. Um, and, and the example I use is um, sort of an odd one. It's abortion, um, an area of conflict. But the uh, American opinion on abortion has not changed in 50 years. We've yeah. tracked it since Roe v. Wade. Um, and yet both of the parties are, are trumping the fact that they have the most extreme positions yeah. on that. So. Thank you so much. Ken Stern, uh, fantastic to, to hear what you have to say. Ken Stern, author and former chief executive officer of NPR, author of the new book, Republican Like Me, How I Left the Liberal Bubble and Learned to Love the Right. Well, the Chinese Communist Party approved a revised charter enshrining President Xi Jinping's name under its guiding principle. This was a departure from the prior two leaders of China, which did not get their names enshrined. Here to explain why this is actually a very big deal is John Fraher, Senior Executive Editor for Business, Finance and Energy at Bloomberg News. Thank you so much for joining us. So this this is a big deal. Why? Uh, this is a this is a huge deal. This is one of the most important uh, political developments in China um, in decades. Essentially, this means that uh, Xi Jinping, the current president, will uh, be in power and will extend his influence over ch- over Chinese politics, over the economy, over markets, potentially for decades to come. In theory, he was supposed to step down in five years' time, but the fact that he is now elevated at the same level as, as Mao Zedong and Deng Xiaoping in the Chinese constitution uh, means that he has a status that goes way beyond uh, that of any other politician in China. Thought for the new era of socialism with Chinese special characteristics. That's the phrase, at least the translated phrase. Maybe you could explain what that means and also in that context that the Communist Party, the party in China, sits above the government to a certain extent. That's right. I mean, the, the key animating thought for all Chinese leaders always is to is to preserve the legitimacy um, of the party. And it's, just, it's, it's hard to imagine this now, but, you know, Chinese leaders have very long memories. They are obsessed with history. Uh, and they talk a lot about how, if you look at Chinese history, there are regular sort of breaks, revolutions, disruptions like that are, are, are a pretty sort of constant feature of Chinese history. And they're determined to do everything they can to make sure that the party uh, stays on top um, of, of all of that. And I think, you know, what we're seeing now in China, this is... Xi Jinping himself talks about the third development uh, of communism, the third step in communism. Mao Zedong established it during the revolution. Deng Xiaoping, Deng Xiaoping um, sort of, you know, created the second wave of, 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 of an economic revolution. And now the th- he is now uh, leading China into a third period where he will restore China uh, as a great power, which is something he spoke about a lot um, in his speech. So that's, you know, you sort of have to parse the language of all of these leaders. But that, I think, is what the, the key message is from this, uh, from this Congress. But, but John, can you square the idea that the Communist Party is still at the top, ahead of the government, at a time when now Xi Jinping himself, this charismatic leader, is leading the nation. He, it seems like he's kind of on top of the Communist Party now. He's on top of both. I mean, he is, in, he is the president. If you look at his title, he is the president of China. So his title, actually, if you look at Chinese history, is one of the lesser titles. He's head of state. 
whereas the really important uh, role is to run the party. So he now runs both. He's head of the military as well, which is another really key one. He control. This is where his power has come from. He controls the three or four most important offices in both the party and the state himself. And he's also been pretty vocal about wanting to be a global economic power and competing. And how does the concept of competing in a broad capitalistic economy mesh with communist values. I think that that argument and that debate was probably won, won and lost in Beijing many, many, uh, many years ago. Again, but the way the Chinese leaders look at it, they're all about prosperity for the Chinese people. And as Deng, as Deng Xiaoping himself once said, it doesn't matter if you have a black cat or a white cat. The most important thing is that it catches mice. The way the party leaders would look at it, it doesn't matter what your ideology is. As long as you are, you are raising the tide uh, for the Chinese middle classes and you are bringing everybody in China up to a certain level of prosperity and sort of undoing what they see as the great sort of economic um, sort of um, backward steps that China took in the 19th and early 20th century. It doesn't matter how you get there. The most important part is that all, you bring as much of society with you as possible. Very important thing to bear in mind as well in the speech, which we can talk about more if you like. President uh, Xi talked a lot about restoring or, or addressing imbalances and inequalities in Chinese society. Uh, it's not just about economic growth anymore. Uh, he's obsessed now with sort of fixing some of the inequalities, both in terms of standards of living and also environmental factors that have been a byproduct of China's economic miracle over the last 30, 40 years. It, it, by all means, if you if you have other things in the speech that you want to highlight, I mean, I was going to talk about the vote in the Central Committee and how an ally, uh, an enforcer, really, of, of Xi Jinping's anti-corruption uh, move is not going to be part of this. Well, that's right. So Wang Kishan, there was a lot of speculation that he would also, he would be restored uh, to the um, to the standing committee. Um, that would have been controversial because there's this unofficial rule in China that once you're over 65, you need to retire. He's now 67. Um, so there was some speculation that maybe if she had put him on, had kept him on, that he would have broken uh, with that long-standing tradition. He didn't do that. You could possibly argue, and again, you know, China's a very opaque place and the governing structures are very opaque, so a lot of this is speculation. You could argue that Wang Kishan, his, his job was done. Like, what his job was to clamp down on corruption at the height, at, at the top of the Chinese party. And in a lot of ways, it was Wang Kishan was Xi's battering ram. He was his instrument of power. It was Wang Kishan that basically put the fear of God into all of the uh, top uh, Chinese leaders. And that was what allowed Xi to, to exercise the power that's taken him to the pinnacle of power now. Thank you very much for spending time with us. As always, look forward to uh, future visits. Uh, John Freher is uh, senior editor for, senior executive editor for business, finance, and energy for Bloomberg. Turn our attention now to the world of food and uh, restaurants, McDonald's, Chipotle. Uh, McDonald's today benefiting from what they call their high-low menu strategy. Here to tell us more about it, Mike Halen, Senior Restaurant Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. Mike, uh, good to have you. What is uh, Tell people what is this high-low menu strategy and how is it working for McDonald's? Um, so it's basically offering a lot of value items, some lower-end items, um, also you know the McPick 2 which the, they do in different combinations. It might be two items for $2.50 or four items for $4, but offering value. And as we know, as the you know largest chain in the world, they can source their product 
cheap more cheaply than everyone else and offer lower price points to their customers and still allow their franchisees to make something off of it. And, and at the same time, on the high end, they're improving the quality of a lot of their items with the signature crafted line of chicken sandwiches and, and burgers. And so that's also drawing um, new customers or, or lapsed customers into the chain. Um, you know, it's what we call a barbell strategy kind of in, in, in this fast food industry. Wendy, Wendy's is another chain that's doing it pretty well um, and also benefiting from it. You know, Mike, I, I have to confess something. When I see you, I think he ate an egg McMuffin this morning. He ate an egg McMuffin this morning because we had a whole I, conversation. I have to go to the gym. I yeah. <laughs> no, 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 not because of that. <laughs> uh, but because months ago we were talking about how the breakfast menu uh, was really bolstering their sales and getting them, uh, getting them this momentum. But here we are, and it seems like this momentum is here to stay. It's not just the egg McMuffin that we talked about, which you, which you liked. Yeah, which I liked, <laughs> and you know, value was probably the first thing, and operations in the stores, and then right after that was was the uh, all-day breakfast. But um, yeah, they, they've attacked their problems on a lot of different fronts. Um, and, you know, it's the, the culmination of all these things that's leading to this very strong momentum. You know, you, you know I, I've said it before, you know, you can't turn around an aircraft carrier on a dime, um, you know, but they've been really aggressive and it's enabled them to, to really turn things around a lot faster than anyone expected. How is the uh, the ongoing effort to uh, sell off the units to franchisers, fr- you know, franchisees, and then just take a, a percentage of the of the money back? Yeah, they hit their goal or uh, a year ahead of schedule. Yeah. So, um, you know, they've they've been um, aggressive. They've they've been, um, you know, whether it be operations or better food or with the structure of the company and the refranchising, um, they've been able to hit their targets and, and achieve their goals faster than most expected. So then why are, are their shares only up one and a quarter percent today? Stocks up 50% in the last year. Trees don't grow out of the sky, you know? <laughs> I, I mean, there's just huge expectations baked in, right? And and so the same store sales were... Um, the, you know, the, the strong same-source sales trends across the globe are continuing. Um, but, you know, revenue and EPS was kind of just in line. So, you know, um, y- you know it's like, like I said, stocks don't go up forever. <laughs> you know, they have to take a breather at some point. You're not just – the Egg McMuffin at a certain point just can't get any larger for you to have for breakfast. <laughs> yeah, just too much. You never know. Yeah, you never know. <laughs> you know, in, in what you describe, it, it rings a bell for me, and it, it says, you know, high price or higher price and customization and personalization, that works, right? The high end of that high-low menu. The low end, convenience and low cost, that works. It's sort of like you're describing the retail industry as well. The high end does well, the low end does well, and the middle just struggles. Yeah, I think that's 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 a good point. I, I mean, and you don't really talk about kind of in the middle much because, um, you know, fast casual has kind of destroyed that, yeah. right? So like, you know, just getting a, a decent meal for eight bucks, you know, six bucks is, is you know, is... That, that's that doesn't kind of, come with table service. No, it's and it's been stolen away by a lot of these fast casual names. So, um, you know, that's why we're, we're, we're doing deep value. And that's why we're trying to improve the high end because we have that competition. You know, QSR has that competition from fast casual and they have to compete. So ta- let's talk about the middle that's suffering. Chipotle, they report earnings today at 4.10 uh, p.m. Wall Street time. And, uh, you know, they've been really suffering with a series of illness, scandals and others. What are we what are we looking for today? 
we, you know, as always, we're, we're looking at the pace of the same store sales and the traffic recovery, especially since there was another norovirus outbreak in July in a Virginia store. Uh, that That's number one, two, and three. You know, I, there was a 550 basis point impact for the week following the outbreak across the chain. We want to see how um, that affects the entire quarter. Uh, and number two would be restaurant margins because there's kind of some conflicting opinions about this. You know, we tend to think that there's still room for pretty significant restaurant margin expansion. Um, management was very slow to take labor out of the stores. When your sales drop 25%, you have employees just sitting around, you know, so they really needed to take labor out of the stores and they weren't aggressive about that. So we think we think there's some more um, low-hanging fruit there. Uh, others might disagree on the street, um, but that's the other thing that, that uh, you know, people are going to look at. And of course, queso and their, their impact, that impact on same-store sales. throw cheese on it and Americans will just come funneling in the door. I mean, cheese Mike is Halen. amazing. Yeah, <laughs> clearly. Mike Halen, thank you so much for joining us. Mike Halen is a senior restaurant analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence, joining us here in our 1130 studios. Gold prices are down today, and they've been sort of uh, on a choppy down trajectory over the past week or so. And uh, here to explain what's driving that is Mike Dudas, partner and metals and mining analyst at Vertical Research Partners based in Stamford, Connecticut. Uh, Mike, I want to first just get your view on what the bigger driver of gold prices is right now. Is it the dollar, which uh, is starting to strengthen a little bit? Or is it the sort of risk on environment which makes people not go to sort of haven trades like gold? Lisa, good morning. Good morning, Tim. So I would argue, I hate to split the baby here, but it's probably about 50-50, maybe a little bit weighted more towards the dollar that I would say ever since early September when gold peaked at 13.50, Lisa, the dollar's bounced about 2 to 3% against trade weighted. And we've seen gold prices retreat and kind of in this little, little little near-term downward range. So I think the dollar has been a pretty good explanation for it. And secondly, there's been a much more risk risk on not only for the equity markets. No need to explain that with some of the great earnings that are being produced uh, this morning, but also when you think about uh, you know geopolitical tensions, which have kind of uh, been pushed off for for a bit. Hey, Mike, I'm just wondering if I can drag your attention out to Indonesia for a moment, because I want to get your thoughts about a mine out there. This is the world's largest uh, combination copper uh, gold mine. This is the Grassberg mine, and uh, it's uh, owned or, you know, it's... It's currently owned, I think, 51% by Freeport McMoran and the subsidiary of theirs, and they're trying to do a deal with the Indonesian government, and that's proven problematic. I just want you to use that as an example to explain to people what it's like to have to invest in a mine, how long it takes to get your money out of the ground after you've spent it. Tim, that's a very good observation. And just quickly on, on this mine in Indonesia, Grassberg, which was discovered back in the 1960s by Freeport McMoran. And... Um, it has been the, uh, an amazing asset, the largest copper gold deposit, as you mentioned. Uh, the government, and right now, currently, Freeport owns a 90% stake in the assets, but the Indonesian government is now negotiating with Freeport to, to grab or to take a 51% stake and buy at a market price the, the asset from Freeport. Um, that, that's an issue that will work itself out. But what it does explain to what it just showed for investors is that where a lot of these base metals and, and soft metals are, are located around the world are in areas where 
governments uh, need the revenues, need the taxes. They're in areas that have, are less developed. And the amount of capital that's required to develop a mine, you can't even replace a mine like uh, Freeport for, for anywhere more than several billion dollars. The time it would take from the first negotiation, the first drill hole, to when you're producing gold, silver, lead, copper out of the ground, uh, you know, at the best, if everything works out well, it's uh, six, seven years. And you're talking more like eight to ten years from a full mine life cycle. So it is a very dicey situation, and uh, and it's difficult to, you know, when you're looking longer term at where the new mine's going to be built, they're not going to be built in politically safe places. And for the most part, I can say U.S. or Canada, it'll be some, but it'll be in areas around the world where there's probably a higher risk uh, tolerance required. Yeah, and it's definitely going to be interesting to see with the supply-demand kind of uh, dynamic right now, because a lot of people, Pim, have been talking about Bitcoin as being sort of uh, the, rolling your eyes. Uh, the 20, well, the, the 21st century version exactly, of gold, right? Exactly, that's where I was going with it. Right. So, you know, people are saying, you know, well, we can mine that while we wait, and people have been using that as a proxy for right. a haven bet. And I'm wondering, in some ways, of whether that reduces gold's appeal as a haven trade, because people are finding other havens that are decentralized right. uh, and uncorrelated and makes it more of a currency and commodity play than it has well, been. Well, and also it becomes a situation sometimes, I think, where the marketing or the publicity around Bitcoin uh, tries to appeal to the retail investor in a way that some gold advocates also try to appeal to those potential investors by trying to paint paper currency and fiat money as being something that will disappear within their lifetime or indeed, you know, what happens if the world ends, you're going to need something other than money backed by a government in order to buy and sell the things you need. Just to give you some uh, sort of reference points, gold uh, spot gold prices up about 10% so far this year. So not terrible, right? Uh, exceeding uh, bonds, right? A lot of this has been driven by the commodities rally. A lot of it has been driven by the weaker dollar. There is an expectation that that weaker dollar will not continue. Mike Dudas, uh, going forward for the rest of the, this year and perhaps the next six months out, what do you think uh, will sort of be the, the main driver for prices? Do you think that uh, if if the dollar sort of stays where it is with respect to its uh, uh, competing currencies, where, where do gold prices go? I think if dollar stays kind of where it is, I think gold probably trades flat to a bit higher. Um, there is still some speculation relative to the Fed and what not only what they may do in December, but what a new Fed governor, uh, chairman of the Fed, might do for, for gold prices. So there could be some near-term volatility there. But if the dollar stays where it is, I think gold prices drift higher, not dramatically higher. As uh, you know, as the, and we can also see when you think about gold as a safe haven, if the equity markets were to correct or if the bond market spikes a bit here to get some risk off of um, trades off the table. What about investing in gold stocks right now, or even in mining shares? I mean, are we at the cycle? I mean, I keep looking at Freeport. I'm sorry to you know keep banging the table on this one, but you know it's fifteen dollars a share. The stock's up what about thirteen so far? Thirteen percent so far this year. It was led uh, left for dead uh, a year ago, right in January, a year ago January, yeah. and uh, you have made some pretty decent money since then. But it has not been a straight shot. No, it hasn't. I think we are we are through phase one of the early recovery cycle in mining and the commodities in general and the mining stocks in particular. We've had some tremendous moves off the bottom from January of 2016. I think Freeport stock has been held back by this Indonesian 
uh, negotiation and the uncertainty how it's going to play out. Once that gets settled, I think there's significant upside in Freeport share price because copper prices, in our view, um, look to be very supportive to move higher, uh, not just on a near-term basis, but medium and long-term basis as demand picks up and the supply issues that we talked about, Tim, uh, starts to show up in more detail in 2018, 19, and 20. When you talk about the supply-demand dynamic, uh, is are we running out of supplies of the precious metals right now? Is demand outstripping uh, what's available? Um, we're not running out of supply. Supply is getting more difficult to, to extract. Uh, we had a capital spending uh, decline and deficit over the past five to six years in the mining industry. And so that, that is going to limit the amount of new supplies that come into the market. What's different about gold versus some other commodities like copper, lead, or zinc is that you know, gold is still around above ground throughout the world. There's probably 10 years' worth of annual demand in central bank vaults uh, globally, and 90% of all the gold that's ever been mined in the world is still around technically somewhere. Uh, so what drives gold prices isn't as much supply demand, though it does help, but it's much more sentiment and uh, from a macro basis relative to inflationary expectations and the dollar and such. On copper, lead, and zinc and those metals, um, we anticipate demand's going to outstrip supply, and that's going to lead to tighter, uh, to higher deficits higher prices, and eventually more investment, but that's going to take some time to come. All right. Thanks very much. Uh, Mike Dudas, he is a partner, metals and mining analyst for Vertical Research, speaking about gold and other uh, metals, as well as uh, that Grassberg mine uh, that is owned by the uh, company Freeport McMoran. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.